with announcements out of the way, let us go ahead and jump into our teaching for this morning. So we are in the book of 1 Samuel. We've been working our way through 1 Samuel for quite a while now. We had actually started uh, 1 Samuel last year, got about halfway through it, took a break, and then we jumped back into it earlier uh, this fall. I think it was in August that we got started back up in, uh, in 1 Samuel. And so we're going to be in 1 Samuel today. We're in chapter 29. We've got just a couple of chapters of 1 Samuel left here looking at the life of David and this drama between him and Saul. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 29 today. And we once again have a, have a great, great episode here before us with lots to learn from it. So I give you guys just a moment if you want to turn there to 1 Samuel chapter 29. If you don't have a Bible with you or you're struggling to find it, don't worry. We're going to have the words up on the screens next to me, so you'll be able to follow along there. Okay, well, it seems we're all about settled and ready to jump in. So we are going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 29 this morning and starting in verse 1. The Philistines brought all their military units together at Aphek, while Israel was camping at what was camped by the spring in Jezreel. As the Philistine leaders were passing in review with their units of hundreds and thousands, David and his men were passing in review behind them with Achish. Then the Philistine commanders asked, What are these Hebrews doing here? Achish answered the Philistine commanders, That is David, servant of King Saul of Israel. He has been with me a considerable period of time. From the day he defected until today, I found no fault with him. The Philistine commanders, however, were enraged with Achish and told him, Send that man back and let him return to the place you assigned him. He must not go down with us into battle only to become our adversary during the battle. What better way could he ingratiate himself with his master than with the heads of our men? Isn't this the David they sing about? During their dances, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands? So Achish summoned David and told him, As the Lord lives, you are an honorable man. I think it is good to have you fighting in this unit with me, because I have found no fault in you from the day you came to me until today. But the leaders don't think you are reliable. Now go back quietly, and you won't be doing anything the Philistine leaders think is wrong. But what have I done? David replied to Achish. From the first day I entered your service until today, what have you found against your servant to keep me from going to fight against the enemies of my lord the king? Achish answered David, I'm convinced that you are as reliable as an angel of the Lord, but the Philistine commanders have said he must not go into battle with us. So get up early in the morning, you and your master's servants who came with you. When you've all gotten up early, go as soon as it's light. So David and his men got up early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel. One of my all-time favorite hymn writers was a man named William Cooper, who wrote back during the uh, either six. Uh, he wrote back during the seventeen hundreds. William Cooper was a uh, hymn writer who wrote back during the seventeen hundreds. And William Cooper, in his life, struggled with uh, an extreme amount of mental illness and especially depression and anxiety that was uh, often very debilitating to him, that often brought him many doubts and struggles with his own faith. And so he found, uh, some, he found some help and counsel with the great pastor John Newton. 
the pastor who wrote uh, Amazing Grace, right? And so he found great counsel with him. He lived with John Newton as, as, as John Newton served him and pastored him and cared for him while Cooper suffered through his many different uh, ailments, mental illnesses, de- depression episodes, and so on. He, uh, there was three different occasions where he tried to take his own life as he struggled. But through this all, as he was being counseled and pastored by John Newton, uh, out of his struggles and his wrestling in his faith with God, he wrote many, and in my opinion, some of the most beautiful hymns that we have in the church. And one of those hymns is by, by Cooper is named God Moves in a Mysterious Way. God moves in a mysterious way. Some of the words that he wrote in this hymn are this. He said, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. In the final uh, stanza, he says, Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his works in vain. God is own interpreter, and he will make it plain. What he's getting at here in this hymn is exactly what's in the title, how God often works in ways that are mysterious to us. As he says there in the end, sometimes in blind unbelief, we, we, we search in vain trying to see how God might work instead of allowing him to determine how he will work. That's what Cooper is getting at there when he says that, uh, that we do so in vain, but God will be his own interpreter, and he will make his ways plain to us. God's ways are often mysterious, and it's important for us to remember. And this is something that you've learned if you've been walking with Christ for any amount of time. But God's ways are not our ways. Sometimes God answers your prayer and he does it in the way that you ask for him to answer it. And that's, and that's great. And that's just the icing of the cake. But so often, we find out that God's ways are not our ways. His paths are not our paths, right? And that, and that he accomplishes his will in ways that we never could have guessed or maybe have chosen. But we must remember this, that though God's ways are not our ways, his ways are always good. His ways are always good. And so while we sometimes struggle to interpret our life in the world around us and, and, and world around us and see how is God working in my life, and you're praying prayers and you're, and you're trying to live in obedience and, and wait for God to come through and deliver, and you're wondering how and if he will, while we struggle with the part of interpreting, right, and, and waiting until he makes his way plain, there's something that we must never struggle with, which is that he is good, in his ways, even though we don't understand them. You see, I think it's hard for us sometimes whenever we look at our life and we try to interpret how is God working and what does he desire from us, what is he doing, because we compare our life to things we read about in the Bible where they had prophets like uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Elijah. They had uh, Moses, or in the New Testament, New Testament with the apostles. You had these prophets and apostles who could speak, thus says the Lord, Right? And they got a direct word from God. And while we have the benefit of reading the prophets and apostles, we don't have any still speaking to us today. And so we think to ourselves, well, it's harder for us to discern God's movement and work in our life because we don't have the same prophets and apostles. In, in David's case, we don't have a Samuel, right? Which is why I think that this story here in this episode in 1 Samuel chapter 29 is really special and different and important because it never explicitly mentions God doing anything in this story, in this chapter, right? Where, where David is with the Philistine, it never explicitly mentions God working or God doing something. But as we're going to see, God is working through this episode. And so there's this very close parallel to David's experience here and our experience that what we might notice at first glance. 
in, whenever we look at how David works, at how God works in David's life in 1 Samuel 29, we can learn some lessons about how he works in our life in his mysterious ways. So we're going to look at three things. The first one is this, that God's ways are mysterious. God's ways are mysterious. Secondly, God's ways are surprising. And then the last thing is that God's ways are merciful. So God's ways are mysterious, surprising, and merciful. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Let's remember the context. Uh, if you have read 1 Samuel before, maybe you remember, maybe you need a refresher, or maybe you've been here this before, maybe this is your first week. What's happening in this context here and what's going on before this? So at this point, David is living in the land of Philistia. This would be the land of the Philistines. He is living among the Philistines because he came to this point a couple of chapters before where he said to himself, you know what? The only way that I'm ever going to be safe and the the only way that I'm ever going to find some refuge is by fleeing from Israel into the land of the Gentiles, into the land of the Philistines, who were previously his enemy, as as the Philistines knew very well here, right? He had come to that point, even though God had been rescuing him and delivering him from Saul again and again and again. At no point had God ever delivered David over into Saul's hands. Instead, in a couple of points, he, uh, he put Saul right before David to show him, look, you know, I've got this under control. But despite all of this, David still had this moment, a couple of chapters before this, where he has a crisis of faith where he starts to struggle, and in his weakness and in his, in his folly, he says that to himself. He says, the only way I'm ever going to be safe is by fleeing, is by getting out of here. And so that's what he does. He flees away from Israel. He goes into this own chosen, self-imposed exile, in a sense, in the land of the Philistines, and he goes to this, this Philistine king named Achish, who he had, he had somewhat of a working relationship, somewhat of a neutral uh, relationship with because of uh, some dealing with him in the past. So he goes to Achish, and they, uh, they make a deal together that Achish is going to give him this Philistine town named Ziklag. That is going to be David and his men's town, so they go and settle there. And while they're settling, settled there and living in uh, the land of the Philistines, they go out in, into southern Judah. Okay, so you got to understand, they're right on the border between Philistia and Judah in these two regions. And so they're, they're crossing over the border into southern Judah, and they're going on all these raids. They're going on all these raids, and they're coming back with this plunder and giving some of it to Achish, telling him, uh, I've been raiding in southern Judah. So here's what Achish thinks to himself. David has completely defected. He is now absolutely on our side. He has turned against his own people, and now he is detestable to them, right? So he is 100% our man now. But what he doesn't realize is that what David was actually doing was going and raiding Philistine tribes who had settled in certain areas of southern Judah that was supposed to belong to the Israelites, that was supposed to belong to the tribes of Judah, to God's people. And so in a sense, what David is doing here with this kind of double crossing that's going on, it's, a, it's an extraordinarily clever scheme that he has going here. Um, what David is doing, even though he is not officially the king yet, he is, is that he is already starting to conquer the kingdom of Israel. He is already starting to build and conquer it but all doing so with, under this guise and scheme so that Achish, the Philistine king, thinks that he's their man. So at the end of, a, a, of that story that we left off on a couple of chapters ago, Achish comes to him and he says, hey, we're going to war with the Israelites and you're coming with us. And David says to him, okay. So he's left there in this very uh, precarious situation, right? Because though his scheme that he, had been, that he had hatched in order to live in Philistia was very clever, it was ultimately foolish. 
It was ultimately foolish because, number one, there is no mention of him doing, uh, uh, following these plans according to God's will. So that's always a, a bad sign. Number two, right, he was using deceit. He was using deceit to uh, keep up this plan and so on. And we know that using deceit, even in a pragmatic manner, does not necessarily make it right. And so now he is stuck in this really hard situation. What is he going to do? Is he going to say to Achish and the Philistine commanders, I can't go to war with you and then give up this cover that he's had the whole time? Uh, Or is he going to try to protect his cover and go to war with them against his own people? So it leaves us there in suspense, and then we pick up back with that here in chapter 29. That's what we're reading about. The Philistine commanders, men who are even more powerful than King Achish, are surveying the troops, and they say, they see David, and they knew David's fame. Um, they, they, or I guess in their eyes, you could say his infamy, right? Because they said, this is the David who they sang their songs and their dances about, about how he slaughtered tens of thousands of us, and you've got him going with us? And they see right through David's scheme. They say, what could have been a smarter plan for him, Achish, right? What could have been a smarter plan for him than for him to ingratiate himself with you, right? To get in your good graces, go to battle with us, and then take all of our heads, right? They say, Achish, you fool, you dolt, right? How could you not see right through this? Get him out of here. Achish, he still believes David. David's his man, he's his buddy, and so he tells him, sorry, you can't go with us. And so on the surface of this story, it seems as though David has been uh, saved from that precarious, sticky situation that he was in with a lucky break, right? Uh, you have to imagine how he was sweating, going into battle and right along with them, thinking to himself, how am I going to get out of this? Or, are we going to just try to duck and run at a certain point? Or are we just going to turn and start fighting them and then have to fight to the death in the middle of their forces? Like, What is going to happen here? Is God going to strike them all dead? And so he's sweating, he's riding along with them, and then he hears, hey, they don't want you with us, go back home. Can you imagine the, <laughs> the relief? That David felt here, the, the sense of like, that was a lucky break. That was a close one. He got out of that just by the skin of his teeth. I have no idea what that phrase means. Your, your teeth have no skin on them, right? But, but it's, it's something that we use. So uh, anyway, but here's the thing. David didn't catch a lucky break. That's not the reason that he was able to get out of the situation. He did not catch a lucky break. It was divine deliverance. It was divine deliverance. It was God working in the situation to bring David out of uh, the situation that he had gotten himself into, even by his own folly. It was not a lucky break. It was God working. Because we need to understand this, that because David was God's chosen king, because, he was in, uh, because God was in covenant with David uh, as his chosen king, right? At the man after his own heart, the one through whom his kingdom would be established and it would be an everlasting kingdom that the Messiah would come through. So because of God's covenant with David, it is assumed in the scripture that God is always with David. And no matter what situation David gets himself into and no matter what he does, God does not abandon his chosen one. He does not abandon his chosen king. He does not abandon one that he is in covenant with, with, one that he is bonded with. This is assumed in Scripture. Earlier in the book of 1 Samuel, it says this in chapter 18, as David was growing in renown and after he had already been anointed to be the future king of Israel, it says that Saul was starting to survey and he was observing David. And it says this in 1 Samuel 18, verse 12. It says, Saul was afraid of David. 
because the Lord was with David but had left Saul. He sees how, how David's life is working, and though there are no outright miracles right, that had happened that he had observed at this point, he sees God is behind this. Later on again in verse 28, it says, Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved him. You see, so it is always assumed, and if, if we read with the right eyes and the right filter, that God is always with David. And so here is the first thing that we learn from this passage about how God works. God often works with quiet care. God often works with quiet care. Like I said before, sometimes we, are, we, we often read the Bible and we read these stories about Samuel, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah. We read about the apostles, uh, Peter, John, uh, Paul, or whoever else. And we see these uh, through their words and through their thus says the Lord's, or maybe through you know, miraculous events, we see God's direct work. And we see that and we say, okay, God is working in this situation. But we often start to struggle to see how God works without those very explicit examples. Whenever God starts to work in his way, which is his, the way that he chooses far more often in the way that he works in our life, which is not through the explicit saying of a, pro, a prophet or apostle who is here today or through um, a miraculous situation, though he can do so if he chooses. Instead, he most often works in our life through quiet care through a silent providence. As William Cooper wrote about, his, God works in mysterious ways. He plants his footsteps upon the sea. He works through the storm. Sometimes we survey in vain for how he is working, but we cannot see it. Why? Because he works in these mysterious ways. He works in his quiet care and silent providence. So just because you do not see miraculous events happening in your life, it doesn't mean that God isn't working in your life because he is working with his quiet care. Now, why does he work that way? Isn't it, it's okay if you admit it, it's a little frustrating. It's a little frustrating sometimes that he would choose to work in that way because I would prefer, <laughs> there's been many times in my life, my life where I'd prefer to work, for him to work in some sort of uh, direct divine, divine intervention, that he would come through in some miraculous sense or that, or maybe I'm trying to discern how he wants me to move or make a choice or do whatever else. And I wish that he would just put it up on a billboard or write it in the sky for me or make it, or, or, or make the words appear on the table before me, whatever else it might be. It, it, why instead does he have to work in his quiet care in his silent providence so often in in his mysterious ways, right? Have you ever felt that way before? Wouldn't that be so much easier and that's the rub. That would be so much easier. Because whenever God works in his quiet care, in his silent providence, you know what it forces us to do? It forces us to stretch and work this muscle called faith. It forces us to learn how to adjust our eyes to see how he works. To, to see where he is moving. It, whenever we, we have to struggle and work through uh, and, and, and wrestle with whatever matter it is that is before us that we are looking for God's working through, whenever we have to struggle through it and work through it as opposed to it just being laid before us in a very easy manner, do you know what that does over the long term? It grows you. It grows your faith. It strengthens your character and matures your your character, and your understanding of him. And you know what else it does? It leads you to truly intelligent worship of him. 
That's what it does over time. It's extraordinarily inconvenient, but it is God's goodness working through that inconvenient to grow us, to stretch us, and to uh, enlarge our faith into something that it never would have been or could have been if it had not been for his loving allowal of us wrestling and wondering and struggling through the matters that are before us. Just in the same way that, that your physical muscles, you know, your arms and shoulders, your legs, will never grow, will never get stronger unless they go through some kind of pain unless they go through some kind of struggle, unless they are broken down a bit. a bit, You know how we do that? Through running, through exercise, and so on. If you want to get stronger muscles and a, more, and a stronger, more healthy body, there's no other way than through discomfort and inconvenience. And in the same way our faith grows, through discomfort and inconvenience. It grows whenever God allows us to struggle. It grows whenever God allows us to wonder and, and, and figure out how, how to tune our eyes and adjust the frames that we're looking through so that we, start to, we can start to see. It starts to fill us with all of these experiences and all these different seasons of walking through God, with God through life that then over time, like I said before, makes our worship of him more intelligent. It makes it more informed through his testimony of working in our life over time and how he comes through for us and he, and, and, he, uh, and he uses his mysterious ways, but then we learn to trust him greater. We see, uh, we see truly how he can come through in any situation. C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters wrote this. The Screwtape Letters are his, uh, his um, fictional story about a master tempter demon who is writing to his nephew who is just learning how to become a tempter. And he says this whenever, he says this to his nephew about how God will often allow his people to struggle and to go through times of hardship and to to go through times where they have to wonder and why he lets them do that. He says this, he says, we want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. God wants to grow you, which is why he allows us to struggle. What does this mean that God often works with quiet care in our everyday life and how we can apply it to even right now? What it means is that you, you need to reflect on these times and praise God for his quiet care in your life. Reflect on and praise God for his quiet care in your life, for his, for his wisdom and for how, though there are times where you may have begun to doubt, he showed you and he came through for you that he never abandons you. And that though he works in ways that are mysterious to you, there's no mystery to his love. And there's no mystery on whether or not he is good and however he chooses to work. Whenever Paul was writing in the book of Romans about how God works, and whenever he was writing about God's wisdom in accomplishing salvation for the world, for Israel, and for the Gentiles who be grafted in, in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, there's this moment where he just erupts into worship as he, as he is writing about God's wisdom and how God worked in a way to bring salvation that no one could have guessed, that no one could have predicted, that no one could have come up with on their own. In Romans eleven thirty three, 33, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? In the same way, we ought to erupt into praise. 
In the same way, whenever we reflect on our life and we see how there are all these times that, that God came through, that he worked uh, even whenever we doubted that he would, how he has never abandoned us even still, even if you're going through a trial like that right now, reflect on that, on, on, on this truth, reflect on God's testimony in your life, and let that turn to praise. With Paul, raise up your voice and say, how, uh, how oh, the depth of his riches, of his wisdom and knowledge. So his ways are mysterious. Secondly, his ways are surprising. Let's look at this. So David is in this situation, right? Like I said before, he, he's sweating as he is riding along with the Philistine forces, wondering to himself, how am I going to get out of this? What am I going to do? Is God going to come through for me? And so on. So here he is in this, in this situation, and God does come through for him. Like I said, with his quiet care, his silent providence, God comes through for him. But he comes through him in perhaps one of the most mysterious and ironic and surprising ways. God turns the Philistines into David's deliverers, in a sense. You know, David in his foolishness and his folly, David in his weakness and his struggling with his faith, had gotten himself into the Philistine ranks and forces, and God works the situation to save him with the Philistines. Isn't that incredible? It's those commanders who see Achish bringing along David and, and say to him, what in the world are you doing? <laughs> Send this guy home. Get him out of here. Do you think that in all of David's wondering, in all of David's sweating as he was riding along getting ready for a battle and thinking, maybe I could do this, maybe I could do that, maybe God will strike them all with a meteor and take me with them. <laughs> do you think in his wildest imagination, that he expected the Philistine commanders to be his savior? Do you think that was one of the possibilities that he was thinking to himself that was on his mind? Do you think he ever expected that? But here's the thing, and this is our second big point. God often works beyond our expectations. God often works beyond our expectations. What we need to understand here in this passage, one, one thing, is that there is no guarantee from this text that God is going to pull you out of every mess that you get yourself into. Very often, the messes and the trials and things we go through in our life, not always, okay, not always, but often, they're due to our own foolish choices. Very often, we get ourselves into the messes that we are in. It's our own folly, it's our weakness, it's our sin, or maybe it's, our, it's a lack of faith, whatever else it might be. Sometimes we go through those trials, and God doesn't pull us out of them, but he walks with us through to the end. Okay, so he doesn't abandon you. But whether he chooses to pull you out, whether he chooses to calm the storm while you're in the middle of it, or, or whether he chooses to persevere you and help you to endure all the way through to the end of it, here's the thing. He often does that in a way that we cannot expect or in a way that is beyond what, how we, once again, imagine the situation playing out. This is something that, a theme that we have talked about a couple of times in this series over uh, David's life, and especially as David has been running through the wilderness. How so often you go through trials in your life. You go through a storm, and you are imagining to yourself no possible way out of this storm that ends with you alive, that ends with you well. You're going through a season of suffering that you just say to yourself, I don't know if I can survive this unless God directly intervenes and takes me out of it. Sometimes it's, it's not necessarily a, a season of suffering, but it's just a season of wondering. It's trying to discern God's will for you, and you, once again, just want him to, to put it up before you. right? Maybe it's a, it's a door opening for your job, a door opening for your family, a door opening in whatever else. 
And whenever we go through these trials or we go through these times of, of wondering of how God is going to work, we start thinking of all these plans. And we pray that God would work according to those plans. Lord, open this door. Or Lord, work in this way. Lord, do this, do that. And so often what we do is we start to place our faith in the plans that we put before God rather than putting our faith in God. Do you see that? And so, so often we start getting our faith and our expectations for how God should work in this situation wrapped up together. And as we continue to walk through the wilderness or or paddle our way through the storm, and God isn't making it go according to the route or plan that we had charted out, our faith starts to struggle. And we start to wonder, is he there? We start to wonder, is he good? We start to wonder, has he abandoned me? The problem is not how God is working, but the problem is that our faith and our expectations for him have gotten tied up together. They've gotten too closely entangled. And so just because he's not working according to our plan or our, our expectations, we have cri- these crises of faith. Or maybe we have these, these indulgences in a sin or whatever else it might be. God often works beyond our expectations. And so if you are going to have a healthy, maturing relationship with God, if you're going to have a relationship with God where you walk in trust and faith in him, and, and if you're going to have the kind of relationship where whenever he calls you to do bold things for him, and he calls you to acts of righteousness and sacrificial obedience, the only way that you will be able to live that kind of a life is to loosen your grip on your expectations and start to say, Lord, however you will, I'm saying yes. However you will, whatever is your way, whatever is your expectation, I'm saying yes to that. And so if you're going through a time right now where you're waiting for God to relieve suffering you're going through, where there's some very real physical suffering going on in your life or in your family's life, whether there's some internal suffering, whether there's conflict, whatever else it might be. As you're walking through that, your prayers to God cannot be, Lord, just work according to my way. And, and you got to watch out for how you're starting to get your faith wrapped up in your expectations and instead just lay yourself before him and say, I know this. I know that you are good. I know that you love me. I know that you do not abandon those that you are in covenant with. And so however you will, in whatever way you make, my answer is yes. So what this means, that God often works beyond our expectations, is that you must loosen your grip on your expectations and be open to God's surprising ways. I'm just going to say one more thing before I move on to this point. Whenever I look back at my own life, and I look at the testimonies that God has given me of all the times that he's worked. And I see how he's come through again and again. Always. He always comes through. He comes through, and, I, and so then I reflect on, well, then what made me suffer so much as I was going through that, that trial and that situation? Eight times out of ten, maybe nine times out of ten. You know what it was? It was just me holding on to my expectations rather than holding on to the Lord. It was me holding on to my plans and wanting God to work according to them rather than holding on to the cross, which is God's symbol, his proof, standing for me for all eternity, that he loves me, that he works all things according together for my good, and that he's got this in his hands. So loosen your grip on your expectations and be open to his surprising ways. 
we got to remember this, that David was in this situation due to his own foolishness and folly. I've said this the past two weeks, and I'm going to say it again today. One of the reasons that I love Scripture, that I love the Bible, and that I trust in it is because it does not hide its hero's dirty laundry. David's life is not whitewashed. Neither are any of the other heroes of Scripture. His faults and his folly is fully laid out, and so it's important for us to remember. David's in this situation here in 29, before God comes through for him, be completely due to his own weakness, due to the, the, the moment where his faith uh, was shaken, and he said to himself, the only place for me to go is with the Philistines. This clever but foolish scheme that he had hatched up to be working almost as a, as a double agent, right, with Achish. He is in that situation completely due to his own foolish and folly. And so he deserved to have to see it through to the end, right? Have there ever been times in your life where somebody says, you got yourself in this, you're going to see yourself through it? We call that tough love sometimes, right? I know we've all been in situations like that before. And, and in one sense, it would have been perfectly right and appropriate for God to have let David just say, you got yourself here, you're going to get yourself through it, right? You're going to see what happens, Whenever you quit trusting in me, David, you're going to learn from this, David. Here's some tough love for you, David. And once this would have been appropriate, you know what would have been even more appropriate? David had sinned against God. He had sinned against God in his lack of faith, in his deceitful plan, and as we said before, in his bloodshed of the raids that he was going on. He had sinned against God. He had broken the covenant with God, and it would have been very appropriate and just for God to have said, that's it. You're done. You lost your chance. You, you broke my law. You, you broke my will. You stepped outside of it. You broke the covenant between us. And so I'm, to, I'm removing the kingdom from you, David. This is the end of the road for you. It would have been completely just for God to have done that because David broke the covenant. But here's the thing. Just because David had broken his covenant with God and was unfaithful, God will not break his covenant with David. And so, this is why God still pursues him in his mercy. We need to recognize this, that it was an act of great and extreme mercy. Nothing, nothing that we can point to other than pure mercy for God to work in this situation and to pull David out of it, to rescue his chosen king who had had this, this folly, this weakness, this failure. It was God's mercy that pulled him out of it. Because here's what we learn in this story. We have learned God's ways are mysterious. They're surprising so often we don't know what he is doing. But here's the thing. His, his ways are always good and merciful. And no matter how we, we are trying to think, what is God doing in my life right now? And no matter what season of darkness you're going through, here is one thing that you can always count on and that David learned, that you're always being pursued by his mercy. This is what David wrote in the most famous Psalm, Psalm 23, verse 6, right? David wrote, only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life. I love what he says there, that only goodness and faithful love, only goodness and God's uh, steadfast love, his covenantal love, will pursue me all the days of my life because here's what that emphasizes to me. So often I am running from God. I start chasing after sin or I start chasing after uh, some other plan due to fear. 
right? I start running from him in, in, a, in a certain way. But you know what Psalm 23, 6 tells me and what 1 Samuel 29 tells me? That I cannot outrun his, good, his goodness and his faithful love. It is always pursuing me. There is no turn that I can take where his love stops. There is no region that I can go into that his love and, and goodness and that his mercy cannot pursue me into. There is no darkness of sin, indulgence and temptation that I can go into that where his love says, oh, I can't go there. God's mercy pursued David all the way into Philistia. God's mercy pursued him all the way to Achish's throne and into Ziklag. And as he was going on, on, on his raids with his schemes, God's mercy pursued him still because no matter what David did, it could not break God's love, his steadfast love and mercy for him. And so here's the, last big, the third big point, the last point that we learned, that God always works in his mercy for his people. He often works in silent care. He often works beyond our expectations, but he always works in his mercy for his people. Just like we can look at David's life and see that there was no place that he could run to where he would not still be pursued by God's steadfast love for him. We learn that God's mercy never runs out for you. It is inexhaustible. He, he, he is so rich. He is so wealthy in mercy that you can never deplete it. His love pursues you no matter what Philistia you go running off into. No matter what fear-driven path you start chasing down, his love and his mercy pursues you still. He doesn't cast you off because of your foolishness. Just like he doesn't, he, or he didn't cast David off because of his foolishness here. No matter what kind of situation you get yourself into because of your folly, because of your weakness of faith, or because of your fear-driven choices or sin, you never took a turn and you never went a place where God said, oh, I stop here. Even if you are in that place right now, some of us coming in to church this morning with the weight of guilt and shame bearing down upon us, in a place of darkness, wondering and questioning, disoriented to, to if God is even working in our life. Friend, even as you cross that threshold this morning and you're sitting in that seat and you're sitting in your darkness and you're sitting in your shame and you're wondering to yourself and you're questioning and you're feeling that guilt weigh you down, God's mercy and his love is pursuing you still. It is pursuing you now. How? How is it possible that God's love could never run out for us, that his mercy could never be exhausted? How is it possible? Well, here is what might be one of the ways that God has worked that might be the most surprising and beyond expectations of all. God was able to stay faithful to David and keep his covenant with David, and God is able to stay faithful to you to pursue you with his mercy, to pursue you with his love, and to maintain his covenant with you, though you often break it with him, because he has taken the curse of for breaking the covenant upon himself. Whenever we break God's law, whenever we break covenant with him, whenever we sin against him, there is now a debt that stands between us. Because of David's lack of faith here, there is a debt that stood between him and God. So what David deserved was the curse that comes with breaking the covenant. That he, reserves the, he deserves the condemnation. And so do we whenever we break covenant with God. Whenever we sin against God, we deserve the curse that comes with that. 
So how will we be saved? Because God cannot just allow uh, injustice by not punishing sin, punishing lawlessness. God cannot be unjust by then allowing uh, broken covenants to go without the due that comes with them. So how will he love us still? How will he still welcome us and pursue us with his mercy? Well, there are two options. Either one, we will pay for that ourselves. We will pay for it with our own blood. We will pay for it with our own suffering. Or this, that most surprising answer that no one could have guessed, that made Paul erupt in praise, as we saw in Romans 11. God took the curse on himself. God took the curse on himself. God took the condemnation on himself. God took the suffering that we should have received on himself in Jesus Christ. Whenever Jesus Christ came to this earth, lived the perfect life, and then died his death on the cross, what he was doing was he was receiving upon himself the curse that should have been ours. Jesus was receiving upon himself the condemnation for sin that should have been mine. In his death, he was paying the penalty that I should have paid and that you should have paid. But here's the thing. Because he took that curse and that wrath upon himself, what he has done is he has, he has swallowed it up in his own death so that now for those who are in him, for those who follow him, there is no more condemnation for you for any of your sin, for sins committed in your past, for sins you have committed today, and for the sin that you will commit in your future. For any follies and foolishness that come up in your life, it has all been paid for. It has all been swallowed up in the death of Jesus Christ. There is not one ounce more wrath or condemnation that God is holding back to just waiting to pour out on you if you make the wrong move. It has all been paid for in Jesus Christ. He has swallowed it up and now you're free. But even better than that, even better than that, because he lived that perfect life, what he did... The New Testament says he was a propitiation. Here's what that big word means. It means that he took that wrath and that curse that we deserved, and he swallowed it up in his own death. He laid it down in his grave, and then he turned what was once that wrath towards us and, that, and was that place of condemnation that we stood in, and he turns it into a place of favor. He turns what was once wrath against us, and now because he has swallowed it up and we can stand in his righteousness, and we can receive the benefit of his obedience, he takes that wrath and he turns it into grace. He turns it into love for you. He turns it into a faithful mercy that pursues you all the days of your life, into your darkest valleys and in your most shameful moments. How is it that God's covenant with David and with us can never be broken? Because as long as Jesus stands in victory over death. As long as Jesus remains resurrected over death, which is, of course, something that can never be overturned, your death is in his grave. Your sin was paid for on his cross, and he stands in victory over, over it all as the once and for all and eternal assurance to us and all who would believe in him that it has been paid in full. That God's verdict on you has been changed from guilty to righteous and nothing will overturn that verdict. That is how God can always work in mercy for his people, even whenever you are at your worst or you are at your darkness. So friends, trust that you are not beyond God's mercy. 
trust that what I've said here is not just nice sounding and not just true for some people or true for others, but that it is true for you. Yes, even for you. Say to yourself this morning, God's mercy is not beyond Aaron. Say it and say it for your name. God's mercy is not beyond me. Because so often what we do is we construct a God made in our own image. One who would, in a huff, at his people disobeying him, cast them off. And because we so often start to follow that God made in our own image, we think that God casts us off because of our sin. Or because we've, we've, we've finally broken that last straw. Or we've taken that one step too far. But that's not how God works. Trust that you are not beyond God's mercy. As we close, there's a really striking way. There's a contrast in the way that this chapter ends and the last chapter ended. If you were here last week, or if you could go back and read in 1 Samuel 28, it leaves with Saul, the one who had persisted in his sin and the one who had uh, chosen to walk away from the Lord. It ends with Saul getting up and walking into the night, it says. But this chapter ends with David, God, the one in covenant with God, the one whose God's mercy chases after, it says that David got up and walked into the morning. We have two options before us here at the end of both these chapters that is the same two options even for us today. Friends, one day your chapter will end, and you will either get up and walk into the night. You will walk into eternal death. You will walk into a place where you receive God's wrath for your sin. Or you have this other option before you. Your chapter will end, and it will be the begin- only the beginning of the most beautiful story beyond expectation that ever be told, where you get up and you walk into the morning light, the morning light of God's goodness and mercy and love that has been following you all the days of your life, and now you are experiencing in full, where you have been freed from your sin, where any last little baggage of shame that you were holding onto has been, has been washed away, and you stand in glorious, brilliant purity before the Lord. And he welcomes you in to his eternal presence and into his eternal life. Our choices are walking into the night or walking into the morning light. Friends, what I want for each and every one of you, for each and every one of us in here, is that we might look forward to that day where we wake up in eternity and walk into the morning light of God's love for us that was secured for us based by the work of Jesus Christ who, because of his resurrection, that work can never be overturned. I desire that for each and every one of us. Do you know that you have that? Do you know that, are you looking forward to to walking into the morning light, or are you still not sure if there is a night before you? Friends, if you do not know, then let me encourage you. His faithful love and mercy is pursuing you even now. It is pursuing you today. There is no cleaning yourself up, there is, no, uh, there, there is no making yourself presentable before him that you have to do because his love has been chasing after you even as you are now. What do you have to do? You just have to turn and receive. Stop trying to outrun his love for you. Stop trying, trying to outrun his grace, grace. Turn away from your sin and turn to him, the one who has loved you beyond any other, and receive his gift of salvation for you. Let's pray. Father, I ask, Lord, as we end on this sobering note that 
there is either the night or there is the morning that is before us. I ask that you would, in a very, very real and serious way this morning, with the help of your spirit, help us to examine our hearts and see where we stand. Are we inside of your covenant, which has been earned and secured for us on behalf of Jesus Christ, or have we been living outside? Have we been living and chasing our sin? Have we been living and following our own rules? Have we been living in disobedience and rebellion? Lord, help us to examine our hearts and to see the true state and where we really lie this morning. Lord, for those who are already in your covenant, who have been walking with you, give them that beautiful and blessed reassurance. Let them take joy and comfort that they are looking forward to that eternal morning light that they are going to get to step into. Lord, if there are some who are not sure and who are questioning, or maybe who are realizing that they do have night before them, Father, let this sting of conviction be answered by with uh, the gift of faith, that they would not just stay and remain in their sin, that they would not remain in the sting of conviction, Lord, but give them the gift of faith so that they would turn away from their own way, so that they would turn away from their sin and turn towards you and grasp hold of the cross of Jesus Christ and let that blood wash away their sins. Let uh, the robes of righteousness that Jesus Christ gives us cover up their nakedness and shame. Father, and let that sting of conviction then be replaced with the joy of salvation. Lord, I pray for every single one of us this morning for salvation joy. Let us experience it today. Let us be refreshed by it. Let some of us experience it for the first time. And then let that salvation joy carry us through the rest of today and this week and and our lives, that it would motivate us, that um, that it would inspire us, that it would comfort us, that it would help us to obey and turn away from sin when we are tempted. And that it would make us people who, um, who trust in you beyond all of our expectations. Lord, so I pray for that salvation joy for us all this morning. In the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior and King. Amen.